Well, uh, those who escaped my good morning first time round, good morning again to you. It's time to uh, turn to our passage this morning and indeed our theme as we continue on our series on the marks of a healthy church. Um, I learned an important lesson a couple of weeks ago, and it was this. When Willie, um, and he's, he's not here so I can say this, asks you to speak on a certain date, make sure to ask him the, the topic or the passage before so readily agreeing. Had I known prior, I don't know if I would have so readily agreed to speak on today's subject of giving. But joking aside, that is our subject this morning, and indeed it is as critical a mark of a healthy church as any of the ones that we've covered thus far, and I'll attempt, of course, to do some justice. However, before we begin, I thought it would just be useful for you if I was to explain why perhaps my heart skipped a beat when Willie replied saying that the topic was giving. Did I feel apprehensive because it's a a topic that can be very personal? Did I feel apprehensive because I know that it is a topic that causes discomfort and can be met with mixed responses? Did I feel apprehensive because I didn't feel well enough informed to speak on the subject? Possibly and probably a mix of all of those things. But I think the real feeling of apprehension within me came from the fact that I knew myself that I was going to be challenged by what I was to read in preparation for today. Now, of course, this is true for for all of Scripture, and we all have, have different responses and indeed areas on which we need to work on. But I guess for me, I knew that this was going to be an area of particular challenge not because I consider myself particularly tight-fisted or indeed overly indulgent, but I knew and I know that there are areas of my life where I can perhaps, maybe unintentionally, but be all the same, prone to demonstrating a love for money more than a love for God. Matthew 6 and 24 says this, "'No one can serve two masters.'" For either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The King James Version renders the word money as mammon, mammon being a god of riches. So Matthew 6 and 24 means the same thing as Exodus 20 and verse 3 when it says, You shall have no other gods before me. A stark reminder, is it not, of the depth of challenge toward our attitude toward money and indeed our acts of giving. So as we come to consider our text and reflect back on it, forgive me this morning if on occasion I use language that doesn't appear to include myself. For I can assure you I consider myself a very applicable recipient of this encouragement and this challenge from God's Word, which I'd invite you now to turn with me to. We're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 1 through to 9. The passage hopefully will be on the screen behind me, and we're going to read from the ESV translation. That's 2 Corinthians 8, beginning verse one. We want you to know, brothers, 
about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means for their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by you his poverty might become rich. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your word, word that encourages us and challenges us. And Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Father, that you would reveal more of yourself, that you would reveal more of your truth to us. And Lord, that we would be both challenged by what you would say to our hearts, Lord, but also encouraged to to live a life that is worthy of your name. Live a life that is worthy of Jesus. Live a life that is worthy of the call that is contained in this letter to the Corinthians. Lord, be with us as we go through it this morning. In your precious son's name. Amen. There was a study um, published by an organization called the State of the Plate. And it took a a five-year look at the giving habits of churches across the U.S. The data gathering exercise was large. It was conducted across all 50 states. And they, they cut across all demographic lines and all church denomination lines. And the study yielded some interesting results some of which jumped out at me. The first one was this. Almost consistently across denominations, they found that only 10 and sometimes up to 25% of the church actually gave regularly to the church. Of that 10 to 25%, those who gave regularly to the church were people who had first started giving in their 20s and 30s, a correlation to early discipline. It found that givers were almost split equally amongst men and women, and again equally across the four income bands that they considered. So no matter if you're a low earner or a high income earner, they were all as either good or bad at giving as one another. Interestingly, it also concluded that those who gave regularly to the church were more likely to attend church regularly, to participate in the life of the church, more likely to read their Bibles than those who didn't give regularly. They were also more likely to give to to causes beyond church life and to give more of their talents and their time. Therefore, you can see why giving is considered a mark of a healthy church. It's part of a a discipline that not only glorifies God in itself, 
but one in which plays an important part in promoting behaviours that contribute to the overall health of a church and the overall effectiveness of a church. This is why we are considering it this morning. But before we consider our passage from 2 Corinthians, I want us to just back up a little to firstly outline some important truths about what our relationship with money is supposed to look like. To do that, you can look at 1 Timothy in chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 3 through to 11. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissensions, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth. And this is where it starts to speak about money. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we were brought into the world with nothing, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And here we we note briefly three things. Firstly, money does not bring you happiness. It's not eternal. Verse 7, you take nothing out of the world and you came into the world with nothing. God is eternal. The thing that that brings us is true happiness. Those things which are eternal. Happiness in God over happiness in money. Furthermore, it says it can plunge you into ruin and destruction. Verse 9, God does not lead you to ruin and destruction. As the psalmist said, he leads by quiet waters, in green pastures. When we get to dangers, toils, and snares, his rod and his staff are with us. He's our ever-present help in times of trouble. Secondly, the money and the wealth that we have doesn't mean to say that it was us who created or gained the money and the wealth. The very ability to create wealth and to have money is given at the grace and mercy of God. I remember at Joan Short's funeral, someone telling a a story of a time that they went round there for Sunday lunch. And they dropped their, their Sunday lunch on her newly laid carpet. And rather than make a fuss about the carpet or cause the person embarrassment by, by running to clean up the spill, Joan just remarked that the carpet was not her own. It was there at the mercy of God. Joan had what Paul describes, this this heavenly perspective of health and wealth that comes solely from God, not done through our own goodness. 
Thirdly, money does not lead to security. Even in this life, money and wealth can disappear overnight. But certainly all that we own in this world is lost to us upon death. And death can come at any moment. There is no security in our riches. That's why in verse 11, Paul tells us how we should live. We are to run away from the the desire of riches and run towards righteousness, towards godliness, toward faith, toward love, towards steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the fight of faith to believe that true happiness, true joy lies in God. Take hold of our eternal life and live in a light of eternity. Money does not bring happiness. The money we are given is given by the grace and mercy of God. Money does not bring security. Security is found in God. So it's within this framework, these parameters, that we should consider our relationship with money as we begin to consider the actual act of how we are to give. And when we look at 2 Corinthians in chapter 8, you will notice that the title to this section of text, if you're reading the ESV, is an encouragement to give generously. In the NIV, if you're reading that, it changes the word encouragement to to collection. Or if you're reading the NLT, it changes the word encouragement to call. And in the New King James Version, it uses the phrase, excel in giving. Now, whilst these headings aren't scripture, they're there as as an aid for us, I think it is helpful to to recognize that the scholars who worked on these translations noticed that in this passage, Paul comes from a perspective, and he spells it out in verse 8, of setting the standard rather than coming from a perspective of creating rudimentary commands. It's here as, as an encouragement. It's here as the, the, the standard bearer as we're to consider how we are to give. Paul does not lay down for us a set of rules on how to give. He doesn't spell out in very plain text that people are to, to tithe or indeed give this amount to the church and that amount to charity and that amount in support of others. Instead, Paul seeks here to ground our giving in great truths about God and man's relationship with God. His take on giving is both deeply practical and deeply theological. He teaches us about the character of God and also explains ways to test our giving in front of God such that we would be cognizant with our relationship with God. Therefore, as we go through these these nine verses, I would like us to pick up on three themes, three words contained therein. These three themes being giving, conditioned by grace, giving, conditioned by joy, and then finally, giving, conditioned by giving. Firstly then, giving condition by grace. Verse 1, if you look at it, opens with Paul saying, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. Right in his opening to this section, Paul is framing for the Corinthians how they should consider their act of giving. And he holds up this example of the church in Macedonia. He says right there, the the church in Macedonia, they consider their giving to be a result 
off the grace that has been bestowed upon them by God. In his very first few words on the subject, Paul shows here he considers both the the opportunity to give and the willingness to give a gift of grace from God. This is the standard, Paul says. We should give because we have first been given. The opportunity for us to even be able to give is at the grace of God. And moreover, the willingness on our part to give is again at the grace of God. It's easy when we think about our giving at times to to perhaps this church or to others to think of it as something that we have done in our own self-righteousness. It's easy to think, maybe not verbally, but at least in your thoughts, how generous you are. Look how I helped that person out. Look what I contributed to the life of this church. Look how I helped that charity or that organization. It was good that we were able to do that. And in truth, it was good that we were able to do that. But it wasn't out of our own goodness or our own righteousness. It wasn't at the grace of our own goodness or our own righteousness. Our ability to give and indeed our desire to give should be anchored and founded solely in the gift of grace that we have first been given. True Christian giving doesn't begin with abundance. It doesn't begin with with a notion that just because we have some extra money that we should give it away. It shouldn't be prompted solely by a guilt trip, hearing an emotional appeal that generates some kind of response. It shouldn't even be given primarily as a duty. Just giving because it's a requirement, so let's get it done. No, rather it begins with God working in us, making us like him. And when we become like Christ, we, like him, freely give of ourselves. We recognize that gift of grace and we take hold of it. Our perspective changes from from looking inward at what we have done and how it will affect us to having a perspective that has been conditioned by grace. A perspective that recognizes that our finances and the material things that we have are blessings that we have been gifted by the Father. A perspective that is so contrary so out of touch with what the world would have you believe and partake in. J. John, the the well-known evangelist, shared a great analogy of this this different perspective. You've perhaps heard this this story before, um, and I'll paraphrase it, but it goes like this. There was once a guy called Dave who was on his own at an airport lounge, And whilst at the lounge, he went to the cafe and he bought a takeaway latte and a bag of mini donuts. The lounge area was quite busy, so he opted to set a free seat off a table that was occupied by another gentleman reading his paper. Dave sat down and he opened a bag of donuts and he took one. The other guy looked up from his newspaper He reached down and he also took one to the astonishment of our man, Dave. The man with the paper then proceeded to do it again and again. And our man, Dave, finds himself getting increasingly annoyed and agitated. But he restrains himself for saying anything. 
How dare he take my donuts, he thinks quietly. Then the newspaper man looks in the bag, sees one donut remaining. He rips it in half, eats his half, puts the other half back in the bag and slides it across the table to Dave. He then proceeds to collect his things, get up and leave. What a cheek, Dave thinks. Five minutes later, Dave hears the call for his own flight. He reaches out for his suitcase and as he does that, sitting on top of the case is his unopened bag of donuts. The point is that God owns all the donuts. God gives us all a bag of 10 donuts a month. Some donuts are big, some donuts are small. But God gives them. And really, we are only here looking after them. When we give back to God one of the donuts through the local church, somehow the other nine stretch further. Perhaps largely because we are being intentional with the other nine, but also because God blesses givers. The question isn't, is going, God going to bless me? But rather, how am I going to handle the blessings that God has already poured out on me? Sometimes we're able to give an extra half or perhaps more than one of the remaining nine donuts because we've been blessed. We don't need to store it all up. There's a great line that I heard this morning from the kids' film Over the Hedge where some cute cartoon animals are being introduced to the art of scavenging. They find a bag of donuts and the lead character, A.G., points to an overweight human in front of a TV saying, Ah, donuts. Humans use those for storing fat over winter. Jesus calls us not to store up treasure here on earth. Jesus calls us to store treasure in heaven. Jesus calls us to look at our giving in the light of his grace. Giving conditioned by grace. Now giving conditioned by joy. Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The churches of Macedonia were those churches in, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and modern-day northern Greece. Corinth, on the other hand, was in the, the southern half in another region. In these verses 2 through to 4, Paul makes it clear to us that the, the Christians of Macedonia, those in Philippi and those in Thessalonica, were impoverished and indeed experiencing great affliction in their extreme poverty. We know this to be true in the context of history because northern Macedonia had been occupied by Alexander the Great and therefore would have had great treasure contained there within it. When the Romans took over the territory, they would have seized much of the wealth and used it to fill the coffers of the Roman Empire. Yet in this short section of text, we learn that the behaviors of the church in Macedonia were completely contradictory to what one would anticipate of a people who are impoverished. Rather than not giving anything, their giving overflows. 
Rather than just giving within their means, they give beyond their means. They have given to the, to the extent where they are begging to take part in the relief of the saints. And when I think of that, I see this, this picture in my head, which isn't, I'm sure, biblical, but you can almost see Paul saying, stop giving. You have given so much. You have given beyond so much. You have, you have given to the point where you literally can't give any more. And yet you're pleading with me to allow you to help further. These Macedonians were given to the church in Jerusalem, a church that was poor. But the Macedonians weren't any better off. Yet they still give freely. What was evident in the church in Macedonia was that while they were materially and monetarily impoverished, they were not spiritually impoverished. In fact, they were full of the joy of the Spirit. They had an abundance of joy, an overflow of joy. What overflowed was their joy in God. They had so much joy that had to be shared with others. That prompted them to show a sincere material concern to their brothers in Jerusalem. And that's the challenge for us here. Is our giving conditioned by joy? Are we disciplining ourselves to read his word, to commune with him in prayer? Are we reliant on his spirit? Are we seeking his face? Are we treasuring his goodness in our hearts? And are we approaching our days and our tasks with a sense of joy in spite of the circumstances that we find ourselves in? Is our giving done through gritted teeth or sophisticated calculations and budgets to ensure that everything else that we hold dear to is going to be okay when we give to the church? Or have we passed those things over to God and rather just given because of the joy that is in us? Jesus, when speaking in Matthew's gospel after a lengthy section of money, says this in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? It's hard. It's not easy. It requires effort and it requires discipline. It requires time with the Father. It requires a deep love of Jesus and it requires a reliance on the Holy Spirit. But through Him and by Him and in Him, we find complete joy. That's what His Word promises. That's what he delivers and continues to deliver. That's what the Macedonian Christians experienced. And that's what we too as a church here in Aberdeen can experience. Giving conditioned and encouraged by grace. Giving conditioned by great joy. What then for giving conditioned by giving? Look again with me at verses 3 through to 5. It says this, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. 
And this, not as we have expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. When you get to that first part of of verse 5, when it says this, not as we expected. Did you expect the preceding words to read, but they gave themselves first to the Lord? Paul is highlighting for us here that the very reason the people of Macedonia were acting in such a way The reason for them given beyond all expectation is rooted right here, firstly, in the fact that they have given themselves to God. The Macedonians are there saying, Lord, here I am. All I am belongs to you. Use my possessions. Use me. Use them all for your glory. You have shown your great grace to me. You are with me. Your joy beats within me. Use me as an agent of your grace. The giving of money has become secondary. It has become a consequence of the much more important type of giving. The giving of oneself to God. This is related, is it not, to the first and greatest commandment. Mark 12 and 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all your strength. Furthermore, Paul In his call from Romans 12 and 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. All of these instructions and encouragements and commandments underpinning the great encouragement that we should take from these Macedonian Christians if we know God's grace, if we recognize that we have fallen short, that there is nothing that we can do to right ourselves with God, but solely to to accept Jesus' grace, his body in place of ours, if we've experienced the joy of that knowledge, the eternal joy that comes from being most satisfied in him when he is most glorified in us, if we have first given ourselves to God to love him with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, then the nature of our giving and our motivation for our giving will be totally transformed. Right here in verse 9, we have the gospel message. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, So that by you, his poverty might become rich. Jesus dying on our behalf. He became poor so that we could become rich. That's his grace. That should be our joy. That's the reason we should want to give of ourselves. To give ourselves to something eternal. To give ourselves to something that surpasses the accumulation of all material and worldly wealth and to focus in on our treasure in heaven. To invest in our relationship with our Savior and not to be greedy with our donuts. Storing them up for a winter that never comes. Church, let our giving be conditioned by grace. Let our giving be conditioned by joy. Let our giving be conditioned on the giving over of ourselves 
to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on your word, Lord, we pray that we would hear the encouragement and the call to give freely of ourselves, Lord, that we would have our eyes opened anew to your grace, to your, to your mercy, to all that you have bestowed upon us. And Lord, we pray that it would transform our hearts and our actions and the things that we do to give him what is yours back to you in the service of your kingdom. Lord, that we would do so because of the joy and the happiness that you give us, a a joy and a happiness that's eternal and not dependent on fluctuations in our own finances or the things that we have. Lord, we pray that you would help us just to be better representations of your Son. In your precious name. Amen.